So this week I read through a secondhand source that this unusual time of uh, social distancing may have led us into nights with increased dream activity. I haven't seen that confirmed anywhere, but I did take notice of that idea because the night before I read that, I had a very distinct and very intense dream. And I rarely remember my dreams, but there are aspects of this one that really stayed with me. And whether it's because of the strange time we're in or not, I don't know, but I thought the timing was kind of interesting on that. So, uh, in this dream, I'm sitting in a white chair in a very modern living room. And this room is all white except for one orange wall. Now, when I was writing this out, I realized, hmm, orange wall. I wonder where I got that from. But there, I don't think there are any subliminal uh, messages about Trump's wall in all of that. But um, I think it was just kind of the general color scheme of the room I was in. Well, across from me, in another chair was Barack Obama. Now, I promise you this is not a political story. It's not even a political dream, but for some reason, it, he was just there. He happened to be there. Also in the room was an architect of some sort. Uh, as we were s sitting and talking, this architect who had designed the home, the house we were in, stood up and went into the kitchen. Um, and went to a kitchen cabinet. Now, th this was kind of an open concept, uh, open floor plan. So Barack and I didn't even have to stand up to go with him. We could see what he was doing from our chairs. The guy walked over and he opened the cupboard. And somehow he had created a system for storing plates that was spring-loaded. The plates were all vertically on their edges, not flat. And so you could pull out one plate at a time, and the next plate would just sort of slide forward, uh, and, but would stay in place till you pulled it out. Now, okay, remember this is a dream, so I didn't have to worry about any of the issues of of things like uh, storage capacity or actual uh, engineering. I just remember that when this architect demonstrated this, both Barack and I said at the same time, wow, it was just the sense of what an amazing invention. And I said to both the other guys, Barack and the architect, this is so amazing. And it will be so helpful for so many people. Then I said, that is the kind of thing I want to come up with for the church. Something that everyone can look at and think to themselves, ah, oh, that would be so helpful to have. That would make life so much better. Then People will want to come to church so they can get whatever that thing is. And then they'll say to all their friends and neighbors, you can get this too if you come to church. 
And I wanted it so badly. I remember this just deep desires as I'm explaining this to, to Barack and the architect that I, I had kind of a pain in my stomach. I was so anxious for this. And then I woke up. And almost immediately upon waking up, I had a bittersweet revelation. It struck me, this is the bitter part, it struck me that the church has nothing like that to give. We don't have any handy object that you can come and pick up and take home and make life better. We don't have one thing that everyone is going to want to have and tell all of their neighbors about. Even more profoundly, it struck me that the church does have one thing to give and really only one thing. And the only thing that the church really has to give is Jesus. Churches can offer all sorts of other services and benefits, but everything else besides Jesus can be found elsewhere in our society and usually better. <laughs> the only thing that the church alone can offer is Jesus himself. But the sweet part is, in the bittersweet, the sweet news is that is all that Jesus wants from the church, is to offer him to the world. And in this particular time, Christ is a tremendous present. In our main story for this morning, as Matthew tells it, this is Jesus' last appearance to the disciples. This whole scene has a sense of a final meeting among friends. Jesus is trying to sum up and impart to his followers what he most wants them to know. At the heart of his message, he gives his followers a commission. In verses 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I don't really like the way the NIV translation, the New International Version, translates that first part. The NIV has it, go and make disciples of all nations. The literal, literal translation is, go and disciple all nations. Not go and make disciples of all nations, go and disciple all nations. If you translate it as go and make disciples, the measure of success becomes how many disciples you make. The focus becomes on numbers, the numbers of conversions or baptisms or members. If you translate the verb as disciple all nations, the measure of success becomes relationships the type and the depth of relationship. Jesus is our example of what it looks like 
to disciple people. Jesus lived with those he discipled. He spent significant time with them. He shared meals and work with them. This is what Jesus called the church to do also, disciple. At the heart of that discipling relationship for us is Jesus himself. Listen again to his own words. Go disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Baptizing someone into the name of, singular name of the triune God, meant to bring them into an existential experience of the presence of God. Dale Bruner notes that in the name of comes from the world of banking, and it means to, to uh, bring into the account of, into the possession of even. And he continues, and thus by baptism, believers come onto the account or into the possession of the great God. Baptized believers come under new management. Another commentator follows up then, the experience of God, the experience of God in these three persons is the essential basis of discipleship. Further, Jesus makes clear that the teaching that goes with this discipling is his teaching, not ours, not anything of our own creation. Again, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. As usual with stories from Matthew, Matthew's gospel, um, part of the reason I quote Dale Bruner so much is that he's written just an incredible commentary, uh, two book commentary on the gospel of Matthew. Again, he was a former uh, professor at Whitworth, uh, at that time, college in Spokane. But Bruner does a fantastic job of summing up what is happening in, and he does it in a very vivid way. And his quote highlights the difference between discipling and trying to make disciples. Bruner writes, Interestingly, the usual missionary terms are not employed here, or the usual evangelical terms are not employed here. Preach, convert, win. A slower, lower profile verb is used, an almost scholastic, schoolish word, disciple. The word pictures students sitting around a teacher more than it does penitence kneeling at an altar. The word's prosaic character relaxes and says, in effect, work with people over a period of time in the process of teaching Jesus. Only the Christ can do the big things like convert, win, bring repentance, or move a person to decision. 
All authority is his alone. But disciples can, must, and will do the little thing of discipling others. That is, they will spend good time with people. The only thing the church has to offer is the only thing Christ wants us to offer, Jesus himself. And in this strange time especially, Christ can be our life-saving present. I know that many of us are lonely. I know that many of us are longing for the physical embrace of those we love. Think about what a joy it would be even to be in a gathering of enough people that you could be bumped accidentally because there were so many people in one place. Instead, we wander around the same empty rooms day by day. The only living things we bump into are maybe our cats or our dogs or the same people we've been isolated with for weeks. Maybe the only living thing we bump into is ourselves in a mirror. But this morning's story reminds us that we are not alone, ever. This story promises and assures us that Jesus himself is present with us, always. Hear again this amazingly good news. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Greek original is absolutely emphatic. Jesus says instead of the way, again, the NIV translates it, surely I am with you. It's, it's the little Greek word, idu, behold. And I like a new translation I came, up, uh, came upon of it that's lean in. This is important. It's like, okay, okay, lean in. I've got something really important to That's what Jesus is doing here is lean in. You need to hear this. Then Jesus uses the separate personal pronoun word for I in Greek ego, ego. The verb that Jesus uses about I am with you, the verb that Jesus uses reveals him as the subject of the sentence. He didn't have to add the extra I pronoun. But Jesus wants everyone to be absolutely sure of what he is saying. He himself, I, Jesus, Jesus is with us. And it's a continuous present tense verb. I am with you. Not even I will be with you, I am with you, always. Literally, again, it's all the days, every day. Again, Dale Bruner here. This all in all the days means that it is not just most days or good days or days disciples feel spiritually fit, but on all days, Jesus is present with us every day, until there aren't any days anymore, until the end of linear time, I am with you always, every day, to the very end of the age. Jesus proclaimed this reality in order to give us strength, 
every day of our lives. Notice how in that Old in the Hebrew First Testament scripture that we read, God's people are about to go into the promised land. Moses has been leading them for decades now, and he knows that it's going to be difficult for them in the new land because of the people that are already there. And he knows also that he can't go with them. So he tries to encourage the people by letting them know that God will be with them. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified, for the Lord your God goes with you. God will never leave you nor forsake you. From Jesus, we hear even the more encouraging words of this presence, because unlike Moses, Jesus is coming with us. Lean in. I am with you all the days until the very end of the age. Folks, if you are lonely, especially, I encourage you to let Christ be present to you, reveal to you his presence in a way that brings comfort to your soul. At difficult times in my life, I have closed my eyes and envisioned Christ wrapping me up in a bear hug and just holding me. At other times, I've spoken to Jesus as a best friend. However it may be, let Jesus comfort you. We're not alone. Jesus is with us. And nothing about our current situation deters from this truth. Hear these words from Paul as my words to you this morning. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or a virus? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the only thing the church has to offer. But in this difficult time, it is life-giving. Jesus is with us always. Thanks be to God.